So until now, our discussion is focused on helping us learn how to navigate our internal spiritual system. How do we do that? By gaining an understanding in the ways that our two souls function, our animal soul and what we call our divine soul or our godly soul. Also, the knowledge and awareness of this spiritual system is able to increase our ability to identify the two souls and recognize their voices and maybe even their their differentiated voices within us. What happens as a result of it is it enables us to more easily identify thoughts and words and actions and which soul those thoughts, words, and actions come from. But what happens when the animal soul's tactics dress up and they look like the godly soul? And the animal soul looks like it's holy and spiritual, and it has the ability to persuade us, to twist us, to follow it. As we become more divine, as we become more refined, the animal realizes that it can't coerce us by using crass techniques. It has to use more refined techniques. So perhaps the animal will dress itself in the divine soul's garments, so to speak. So maybe it's, you know, the animal soul puts on a kippah and puts on a talit and uh, who knows, uh, gets a, a Torah and a siddur or maybe looks like a rabbi in order to get our attention. As such, it's so important that we become more clever than it so that we can, so to speak, sniff out the tricks and the disguises by discover by discovering who it is that's really speaking. Is it our divine soul or is it our animal soul? So today we're going to look at the battle. How does the battle function? The battle between the animal soul and the godly soul. The animal soul is located in the left ventricle of the heart. And from the left ventricle of the heart... It spreads throughout the entire body. What does the left ventricle of the heart do? It pumps the blood. So through the blood, the animal soul is able to have full mastery over the body. Our unrefined, our negative traits, like anger, like lust, like pride, they are housed there. And they rise up to the brain for consideration. And from there, they're dispersed throughout the body. The godly soul, the godly soul is located in the brain. And from the brain, it spreads throughout the entire body, including the right chamber of the heart. So, the animal soul's efforts start in the heart with cravings, with a strong desire to obtain what it wants, and then it tries to influence our mind 
trying to convince us that it's worthwhile to pursue what it desires. For example, you pass by a bakery and you smell the croissant, you smell the baked goods. The heart longs for them. And the heart is going to persuade the mind in the most logical thing right now in order to get you to go inside and to buy something that's delicious. The animal says, I haven't eaten in two hours. Who knows when you're going to pass by another bakery. Look, it smells so good. Look, it looks so good. What the animal so wants, it wants it right now. It doesn't want to change. It doesn't want something else. It doesn't want you to try to justify, oh, the calories, the this, the that. The animal so sees it wants. The opposite happens with the godly soul. The process starts within the mind. Our contemplation of God's greatness, our contemplation of God's glory is inspired within the heart. And as a result, we get strong feelings of love and a great joy over our merit to be connected with him. The Tanya calls the body the small city. A city can only have one ruler. A city can only have one leader. Or in our metaphor, a city can only have one king. If there's more than one, they fight until one conquers the city and becomes its sole ruler. Then the ruler gets what he wants. What does the ruler get? All the city's inhabitants to be able to listen and obey him. This is exactly what happens with the two souls. They are in battle with each other. They are in battle with each other for control over the body. Each one of them wants to be the sole ruler. The godly soul wants to be the sole ruler. And its desire is for all the limbs of the body to fulfill its wishes alone. In our metaphor, it's to be its chariot. What exactly is this chariot? So I, let's use more modern imagery. We compare a chariot to a car. When you drive a car, you completely control it. It goes wherever you decide. The car has no will of its own. The godly soul wants the same. The body moving in accordance with its wishes, totally subservient, like, like a car controlled by the driver. That's what the godly soul wants. Besides, for this level of dedication, the godly soul also wants the body to serve as a garment for its ten attributes, for its thought for its words, and for its actions. Then, then the godly soul fills the body with everything it experiences, with all of its experiences, with its attributes, with its garments. And this way, there's no room for anything else. There's no room for foreign attributes, for foreign garments, 
No one else is able to enter the city. We're using this metaphor of the body being the city. What this godly soul wants is to siege the city in a way that nothing else can get in. It wants to be the sole ruler. How does this happen? It's very nice in theory, but how does it happen practically? Through the contemplation. Through the contemplation of God's greatness. Through the mind. What is the mind? The Chachma and the Bina. So we're full of, of the godly conceptualization, of the godly understanding. Further contemplation forges this bond with the conceptual attribute of Dat, which generates the emotions of love and awe in the heart. And if it's done successfully, this contemplation is, is going to produce a love like fiery flames, like feelings of longing and yearning so intense that one is ready to forgo everything for the Creator. A love that is so powerful that it overflows the heart's right chamber, the home of the godly soul, and it spreads into the left side where the animal soul resides. So what happens here? is our animal soul that sits in the left ventricle of the heart. And our godly soul that sits in the mind. When the godly soul, so to speak, sieges the city, is able to control the body, it also then can go into the right ventricle, and that's where the battle happens. So from the right ventricle, it's able to take over the left ventricle. And the opposite can also happen with the animal soul, even though we don't want to talk about it too strongly. So this guy is driving this old jalopy. It's a sweltering hot day. Not much like today. (laughs) And despite having all the windows open, he's sweating profusely. And then he notices the Volvo next door, next near him is passing by with all its windows closed. And he wonders, how is it possible the driver's not hot? Maybe the heat doesn't enter the car when the windows are closed. So he closes all the windows and naturally it becomes even hotter. So the next traffic light, he pulls up next to the Volvo and he signals for the driver to open the window. And he says, aren't you hot with all the windows closed? He says, what do you mean? I have the air conditioning on. In Hebrew, the word avir, air, is an acronym for Ava Vira, for love and awe. Like the driver of the jalopy, like the driver of that car with all the windows open, we think that closing all the windows is going to keep the heat out, that we won't have temptations, that we're not going to have lusts, that we're not going to have cravings, but, cravings, but it doesn't work. The heat is coming from inside of us. So we have to turn on the air. What is the air? The avir, the ava, and the yira, the love and the awe. If the right chamber of our heart is full of love and awe, it's going to spill over into the left chamber of the heart and keep the desires and keep the cravings of the animal soul in check. Then 
we can more effectively subdue the animal soul's claims for attention, and we won't banish the darkness by beating it with sticks, but by illuminating it with tons of light, the light of clarity that we shine on the situation with our feelings of love and awe for God. So what we want to do is we want to just fill it with light and light and light and light. We'll be back after a quick break. Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? <laughs> Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex, to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. One of the hardest things to do in this process, in this battle, is to change our attributes. How do we do this? How do we effectively create this change? When the love in the heart's right ventricle is very intense, it completely fills the area, the right ventricle, and it spreads automatically to the left ventricle. There, it encounters lusts, negative character traits, and it begins transforming them into positive traits. Love for the world's pleasures become transformed into a love for God. And this is what it means when we say the verse, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. We say it in the Shema. What is it doing? What is the verse saying? It's instructing us that our love of God should be with all your heart. But the spelling of the word heart, instead of being grammatically correct, which should be what, with the letter bet, what do we say? We say levavicha with two bets instead of with one bet. What does that mean? There's two hearts. There's two sides to the heart. The reason for this spelling is clear. The Shema is telling us to love God with both sides of our heart, the godly soul and the animal soul. It's not enough that the godly soul who loves God naturally and automatically has a love for God, but our inner animal soul should join together with the godly soul despite its natural inclination towards pleasure-seeking, towards independence, towards separation, and towards being distant from God. The goal of our struggle is to have both souls fall in love with God by investing all of our energy 
by investing all of our attributes into the relationship with God and, elevated, and elevating everything to holiness. That's how it works. It's very, very easy to say, I don't have a choice. I had to do it. Yeah, you can think of all sorts of horrible behaviors that people, people yeah. do and they you know, justify it like that. The point is that you can justify anything in the name of anything. Yeah. And here, what you want is to inspire yourself in a very different way. Let's talk a second about the nature of love. According to the Tanya, the first level of love is compared to fire that continually burns and it wishes to grow stronger and higher and to reach a higher level. The next stage of love is even loftier. It's compared to water because it indicates and inspires pleasure and enjoyment in Hashem, in Hashem's Torah and performing the mitzvot. When I'm in one place, but I want to go to another, my desire to move is like a burning fire that longs to reach even higher, trying to, almost to a certain extent, to reach the sky. But when I arrive at that new location, my movements are more tranquil. Cool water. Like I feel like the pleasure of, that I have achieved of, um, of what I wanted. So now what ends up happening is we have a higher level of victory when the godly soul experiences delight and pleasure from godliness. This level of the godly soul, this level of divine service is exactly how the righteous person, how the tzaddik, experiences joy. The tzaddik, the first level, is the level of the tzaddik, where the tzaddik experiences joy continuously in God and godliness. But even if we have yet to reach this level, because we're not <coughs> righteous, it's still important that we learn to experience pleasure and enjoyment directly from holiness. Imagine if we can experience pleasure and enjoyment that comes from holiness and not pleasure and enjoyment that comes from the animal soul. When we're talking about striving to develop our connection with God, the most powerful way to establish that connection is through this spiritual pleasure. Because everyone has the natural capacity and the desire for experiencing pleasure in life. Like Fred was saying before, that when you teach a child, you want to start with what they're passionate about. You want to start with what they're excited about. If you're trying to create the excitement in the child, you're missing the point. You take what they're passionate about, you take what they're excited about, and then you're able to change it and kind of twist it to the way that would help them understand or to help them learn whatever it is that they're learning. 
Now, although we learned previously that delight from worldly things actually puts a distance between us and God, it's impossible not to express our God-given capacity for pleasure. God gave the desire for pleasure so that we are able to channel it for godly purpose. So we need to take our innate desire for pleasure that we know so well when it comes to it on a physical level, and we have to see if it's possible for us to channel it for a godly purpose. If we try to forego all the material pleasures, completely cold turkey, without replacing them with holy pleasures, what's going to happen? We're going to be left without a way to experience pleasure. And then we're going to defeat the entire purpose because we're probably going to become depressed. Or it's just a matter of time before we fall back into the pursuit of worldly pleasures to satisfy our basic human needs because we can't live like that. It's a problem that, that a lot of Western diets have where they tell us to abstain from something but we don't replace it with anything. If you're going to get rid of one, let's say, negative habit, you need to figure out a way to replace it with a different or a, even better, a positive habit. So it's essential for each of us to find a way to experience pleasure in the realm of holiness. We can learn to truly enjoy the mitzvot when we do, and the Torah study that we study, not just to do these things from habit, because we're obligated to do so, but to actually be able to inspire this feeling of pleasure within us even more. We can take a neutral pleasure, like let's say enjoying a sunset. And we can use that opportunity of the sunset to thank God for the beauty that God created. We can say a bracha, a blessing on an apple, and thank God for all the vitality and sweetness that he implanted in the fruit. And when we succeed at this, when we're able to do this, our animal soul is subjugated to the godly soul. And even if it's just for a moment, that's how we start. We start by allowing this to happen even just for a moment. And what happens in that moment is all of our emotional attributes are directed towards God alone. They completely permeate our thoughts. They completely permeate our speech. They completely permeate our actions and they lead us to learn more and to perform more mitzvot and to be involved in good and holy things all the time. And that's the point. That's what we want. We want to start these micro experiences. We're not expecting life changes, but one momentary change is a very powerful change. And one momentary change is going to lead us to a next momentary change, to a next momentary change, and that's how it happens. So instead of taking on a New Year's resolution, which doesn't work, take on a New Year's resolution once, or take it on for a day, or take it on for a week if you ever so want to be so bold. And that, what happens is, at the end of the week, you can take it on for another week. Who said you just take on New Year's resolutions once? Take it on a week at a time. A day at a time. And some people need it an hour at a time. 
And that's what happens is there's a trickle effect the moment you start that. The moment the godly soul is ignited, the moment the godly soul is inspired, then it just kind of moves and moves and moves from there, if you allow it to. Now, of course, if we're talking about the battle, we have to talk about the animal soul. The animal soul wants the exact opposite. The animal soul also seeks complete control over every part of the body. It also wants its attributes to be invested in the body. It also wants to have the body exclusively as its car, as its chariot. I don't know if we need to give examples because I think we all know our animal soul very well and we don't have to start uh, giving examples of what the animal soul wants. But the truth is that deep down, the animal soul doesn't really want to win. According to Vitania, the animal soul secretly is hoping to lose the battle. But it has no choice. It has to do its job and it does its job very well. But it wants to lose. The Zohar compares this battle to an old story about a king who had only one son who he loved very much. And because of his great love, the king commanded his son to stay away from strange women. At at some point, the king decided to test his son to see if he was able to obey his command. So he hired a beautiful woman to tempt his son. And even though she understood the task that she, she was hired for, and that it was a test for the king's son, she was secretly hoping that she would fail in her mission. And the king would be pleased the prince had succeeded, as the king had hoped, resisting the temptation and proving he was worthy. But it's important to mention in this analogy, because it's an analogy that is brought a number of times in Kabbalah, is that the challenge was not just to test the prince, but it was also to elevate the prince. When we overcome our tests, we rise to higher levels. When we handle life's ups and downs, the very challenges themselves are what propel us to greater heights and levels. And the same thing is true about the animal soul. Externally, it appears to be against us. Externally, it appears to trying to bring us down and take us to unhealthy places. But deep inside, it's on our side. It wants us to say no. Like the beautiful woman that wants the prince to say no. But she's going to do her job because the king hired her to test the prince. It wants us to withstand its temptation. The animal soul has to do its job and it's going to do its job well. But the animal soul also knows that its job is a test for us. And the same thing applies to all worldly matters that seem to oppose, that seem to interfere with our lives. We have to keep in mind that they are actually in our favor. They're rooting for us to withstand the temptation, to ignore them. And even when others, let's say even other nations, other people are against us, 
there's all this talk about the rise of anti-Semitism. It's actually helping us because their threats and challenges bring the unity of the Jewish people to greater levels. Their oppression of us brings out more of our inner strength. And sometimes when we as a people are divided, we need external factors to be able to reunite us. And of course, the anti-Semites are completely unaware of how God is using them to fulfill his purpose. And if you ask them, why are they inflicting us? They're going to offer a very different answer. Because they are unable to sense the inner dimension and truth. They see themselves as hating the Jews unequivocally. Imagine this a second. Let's go back to our story of the king and the, and the woman. Imagine the woman was hired to tempt the prince, send someone else in her place, but doesn't reveal the secret. And the second servant has no idea that she's acting as an emissary of the king. Even though the first woman knows. I'm sorry, say that again? Imagine that she hires someone to go in her place. And the other person has no idea that, that, it's, that it's a test. Okay. That's the same thing with the animal soul. On the surface, it appears that the animal soul is our enemy. And in fact, in some areas of life, the animal soul itself truly feels that way. But in its inner sense, it knows its real mission. There was a, a Jew, a European Jew, who started becoming uh, more connected to Judaism and spiritually and becoming more observant and became uh, a regular participant at one of, in one of the Chabad centers in Europe. But even though he was becoming more connected, he decided that he wanted to get married and the woman that he was going to marry was not Jewish. And the rabbi didn't know what to say to him. And he was reluctant to challenge him directly because he wanted to inspire him and he wanted to bring him closer. But he also knew in his heart of hearts that marrying out of the faith was really, was really bothering this rabbi. So the rabbi had said to him that he was going to visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Brooklyn. So the guy said to him, I want to come with you and I want to ask the Rebbe for a blessing for my marriage. They arrive in New York on Sunday when the Rebbe was distributing dollars. We give out dollars to people and for charity. And when he finally reaches his turn in line, he told the Rebbe of his plans to marry this non-Jewish girlfriend. The Rebbe looks at him and says, I envy you. He did not expect this response. He didn't even know how to react. He thought the Rebbe would try to convince him not to intermarry. He knew what he was doing was wrong. He figured the Rebbe would lecture him about the importance of Judaism and preserving the Jewish heritage. Instead, the Rebbe says to him, I envy you. And the Rebbe went on to explain that coming closer to God is like climbing a ladder. And every test in our lives is like another rung on the way up. The greater the test, the higher the rung, and the higher it is that we have to face that test.
as great as it is. So as we go up the rungs, the tests become greater. With such an incredible potential, you have such a great connection of coming closer to God. The Rebbe was showing this man that he was facing a difficult choice and that God had orchestrated this entire situation as a test that he, would with, that he could withstand to ascend higher. And that's what the Rebbe said, I envy you. We have to look at our animal soul's purpose in the world in the same exact way. It was given to us for a reason, to give us challenges that we are going to need to overcome in order to ascend higher. And that's the entire point. So once again, just to summarize today's class, each of our souls want total and complete control. Neither is willing to settle for anything less. A 50-50 split is out of the question. And we have to get to know each of our souls, the animal soul and the godly soul, very well to ensure that the godly soul is always victorious. And of course, the animal soul doesn't want to win, but it's going to do its job because that's its job. And it has to know, and as the animal soul um, is more and more subdued and the godly soul wins, the tests and challenges are going to get higher and greater to the point where the man who comes to the Rebbe and said, the Rebbe says, I envy you because of your great challenge and the ability and the power that God trusts within you to overcome that challenge. What did he decide? I don't know the end of the story. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode.